you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm always really excited to meet new people, and I have such a passion for this business that I love talking shop with other operators. So super excited. This week, I'm speaking with Mr. Ken McGarry, and he's the co-founder of a company called Corrigan Hospitality that helps operators and managers reach their maximum potential. We're going to be talking all about best practices, how you find, motivate, develop a team, especially during this labor challenge, what the priorities are of management. We're going to talk about empowerment versus delegation. And Ken has a new book that he's releasing, and it's called The Surprise Restaurant Manager. And it is as it sounds. Now, a lot of us ended up in this business, sometimes quite by accident. There was a need. We rose to the challenge. So we'll be talking all about the different scenarios where you can recognize talent in someone, move them up in your organization, and empower them to lead by example and develop the team. Now, when you've got that in place, you've got a real exit strategy for the future. We'll talk all about that as well as priorities for management and, of course, best practices. So stay tuned. Rock stars, let me tell you about Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed for restaurateurs, by restaurateurs. Effective labor management is more important than ever to maximize profit and success, especially now as restaurants begin to reopen and expand their teams. Trusted by over half a million restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to simplify scheduling, easily manage time and attendance, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll systems you already use and trust, turning your team into a competitive advantage to your business. Right now, Restaurant Rockstar's listeners can get three months absolutely free. Get started now at sevenshifts.com forward slash restaurant rockstars. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com forward slash restaurant rockstars to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Now on with the episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. As you know, these are engaging topics that help restaurants rock their profits, build their brands, deliver amazing guest service experiences. And that is particularly um, appropriate to today's guest. Mr. Ken McGarry is the co-founder of Corgan Hospitality. He's got an extensive background in the restaurant industry. Welcome to the show, Ken. How are you today? Thank you so much, Roger. I really appreciate you having me. Well, this is terrific because we're going to get into all the ins and outs of restaurant management and how front of house staff become managers and all the best practices. And I've always called this the business of a thousand details, because even if you get 990 of those details correct, as my audience knows, it's the 10 you miss that the customer always sees. And a front of house or a general manager is really you know, responsible for every one of those details. There's a lot of balls to keep in the air. So this is going to be an exciting discussion. I would agree. Yeah, it is definitely the devil definitely lives in the details on this one. That's for sure. Fantastic. Well, as my audience knows, I love to get into the backstory of my guests and yours is particularly fascinating because you've been in this business a long time. You've had numerous positions throughout, you know, the restaurant business. So why don't you take us to the very beginning, what your original inspirations were, how you got into the business, some of the positions you've had, how you got sort of baptized by fire into management, like all this stuff. And then leading to your consulting firm. 
Excellent. So the my basic uh, start was as a dishwasher slash uh, mascot for a children's pizza party place to where I got to wear the mouse outfit and go dance around at uh, tables when I wasn't washing dishes. And it was my first time that I realized at a very young age that uh, getting a promotion helps because they always pick the dishwasher to go put on the mouse outfit. And it was never the guy making the pizzas. So I lobbied very quickly to try to get onto that part of the kitchen. But I always realized, I realized very quickly that the beginning Really, really, I was more focused on front of the house more than back of the house. So I did serving. I did bartending at 18 because in Oklahoma, you could do that at 18 if you were like with a caterer. So that was a fantastic opportunity to kind of get my feet wet in the industry. And then I went to college and picked up bar jobs along the way to kind of make ends meet. And one day I was working at a bar. I was usually the day bartender because I never had the super talent for being fast behind the bar. So I was the guy that you saw during the day, walk in, have a bloody Mary, start my day. All things great. And somebody handed me keys and said, Hey, do you mind start opening up, throwing out drawers, maybe making the schedule. And then the next thing you know, surprise, I was the manager and had zero idea of what I was doing. And that was really kind of how I got into management and then found myself, moved to Chicago, uh, was working security at a nightclub while also working as a night auditor in a hotel to kind of keep, again, ends meet, and was made the manager there, again, with no real training, and made a whole bunch of other mistakes. And I just started tracking all these mistakes. And as it went along, started realizing that I, I wanted to write these things down so that other people wouldn't make the same mistakes that I did. And that's kind of how we get to the book of uh, being the surprise rest restaurant manager. Yeah, we're going to talk all about the book in a moment, but you touched on a couple of key things. So first of all, uh, we have a very similar background. My very first job was I was a dishwasher at a country club, and it was a private club, not a public one. So obviously the members had high expectations, and that was really my 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 baptism into that word hospitality. I'm going to ask you your definition of hospitality, but I really learned that pleasing the guests obviously equated to more money in my pocketbook, you know. And I was quickly promoted from dishwasher to bartender, which uh, you know follows your story a little bit. And then I was there for a couple of years, and and I worked in the clubhouse bar for all the members. And then I also this place did a ton of weddings and you know special events and banquets and all that. So I became a banquet bartender. And I, you know, it took me through high school into early college years and all that. And it was a great way to get into the business. But, you know, the foundations of hospitality just kind of stayed with me. So you you mentioned being, uh, you know, thrown into management and quickly having to kind of find your way and learn. Did you find, well, obviously you thrive under pressure, but did you find that, you know, the staff that reported to you, you know, you needed to develop their respect and it's hard to respect someone that it's obvious doesn't know what they're doing. How did you find that balance between, you know, leading by example, getting people to do, you know, what they needed to do to perform at their best and still figure it out along the way. There had to be a huge balance there. 
Well, I think that it's something I continue to relearn over and over, which is it doesn't matter your title. It doesn't matter your engagement. Just because you have that title doesn't mean anyone is listening to you whatsoever. Okay. And I mean, so I, when I had that first management job, I would definitely tell people, hey, you have to make sure that you're on time. And they'd be like, yeah, okay, Ken, that, that'll work out real well. That there wasn't that ability to motivate people beyond saying, because I'm a manager, you're supposed to do this. And there's no benefit in that. So very early on, but over and over, I realized that the more that you are there as a support role and a communication role, and the less that you are in an overlord, overseer sort of aspect, the more that you actually get done. And I talk a little bit about the difference between being that person who always jumps in and helps because you can't always be that person who works alongside your staff because a certain amount of delegation is important, but you have to figure out the, the perfect balance between helping out in the middle of a rush and what helping out actually looks like that doesn't get in the way of your team. So I've kind of crafted that over the years of what a real manager should be doing in order to support their team, which is really their ultimate role. Absolutely true. Absolutely. It's all about support. So how do you define hospitality? And what does that word mean to you, Ken? You know, I've always said, and it's completely unoriginal, and we've all heard it for forever, but it is, it, it's the basis of having someone in your home because it solves absolutely everything. I talk about this with hosts all the time. The number of times that you walk into a restaurant and you walk up and it's 1045 and the restaurant opens at 11 and you pull in the door and the door is locked and you see the person that's at the host stand who points at their watch and is like, oh, no, no, it's 15 minutes. And then they make you stand outside or go sit in your car. That that drives me completely insane because if you were having a party at your house, you had a dinner party that started at seven. If somebody shows up at 645, you're not going to be like, no, Carl, go sit in your car. We're not, I'm not ready for you. It would be like, hey, come on in, have a drink. I'm still working on a few more things. I'll be with you in just a bit. Why can't that happen 15 minutes before the restaurant opens to have somebody come in, give them a glass of water and be like, hey, you know what? It'll be a few minutes before we're open, but please relax and I'll be right back with you. We don't. We choose to live by these rules, these gatekeeper associations that hold you. And that to me is the difference between service, which is we are open here. You are transactional. You are a customer versus welcome. This is our place. We're happy that you're here with us and you're our guest. That's an approach. It's all about the welcome and meet, making people feel like they're guests in your home. And, and every customer should feel as though they're the most important customer in the place, even if they're a first-time visitor and not a recognized regular. So I, I totally love that. So this is going to be the biggest challenge that restaurants have for a long time. And this might be a really multifaceted sort of topic, but the labor crisis is affecting every single restaurant. And Operators, owners, managers are, are obviously getting burned out because they're struggling to find, keep, motivate a great team. And, you know, how do we get through this? Because as we get into the warmer months now and the pandemic is sort of on the, you know, in the past rearview mirror and things are getting better and business and 
you know, restaurants is starting to boom and we can't serve the customers with the hospitality they've come to expect, which then of course leads to negative reviews. It's like, it's a huge quagmire that, you know, some restaurants will stick the help wanted signs in the window, which is never the answer. You know, I've always believed there's three types of employees. There's an A, a B, and a C team, of course. And all those things go without saying, but you you wish you had more A's and B's, 20 more of those people, and then train, train, train. But what would you say your best advice would be to operators? How do we deal with this? How do we empower people to take on more responsibility so that they don't burn out, but they feel like they're, you know, their their opinion and their approach is valued to the business? And how do we get through this crisis, Ken? I know that was a long wind. That is that is a you know, long, you know. But you luckily, know where I'm going uh, with this, right? Everyone's I do, struggling right? with it. Everyone is. Everyone is. I have clients nationwide, and I don't yeah. have one restaurant that says, "Oh yeah, we're good." There's there is a absolute national struggle. I think first off, being cognizant of what you can handle. That there are places to where you walk in, and there are tables empty. And people, you say, oh, well, it's going to be an hour wait. Well, I see tables right there. But being very honest with with guests and saying, I appreciate that. And I understand exactly why well, I just do not have the people that can take care of you. I, I can sit you, but it it will take forever for someone to come over because I don't have the staff. Right. And that yeah. is, is a tough thing to admit. I actually, in some of our venues, we have cards where you pass out to where you say, I am so sorry that I was unable to take your walk in this evening because of we know that we cannot provide a level of service based on our stat- global staffing. Please come back, $10 gift card, whatever. But it's trying to cram 100% capacity at 50% staff is just a no-win situation for the guest and definitely for your staff. There's no way around that. Uh, but I think that in our avarice to try to recoup money coming out of being closed for so long, there is a tendency of doing that. Mm-hmm. There is. I think that there's also, and you and I have probably always worked at these places at some point in our lives to where someone would come in and they'd have a stack of resumes and they'd be the manager and they'd say, well, you guys, if you don't do a good job, I've got a whole stack of people that could replace you. And it was always this thought of, aren't you so lucky to work for us? And the smart restaurateurs pre pre 2020, were still beginning to change that conversation of instead of, Hey, thank you so much for working with us. We really appreciate your help versus aren't we so great? And aren't you so lucky to be working here? That conversation continues that much more now, because if you're a good server and a good bartender, but definitely a good manager, you can work anywhere. Like legitimately, there's just you, which means that you have the ability to hold your restaurant the task of being the type of place that is empowering and being the type of place that does promote balance and structure and creates a type of environment that makes people want to come back. Because if we're being really honest about the restaurant environment, it's long hours, it's hot kitchens, it's brutal environments, and you've who wants to come back to that? Well, we need to change those conversations, change those hours, change those levels of empowerment to make it an attractive place again. So the revolution is now it, with the staff holding 
their restaurants accountable. And if they're not the people that are going to be forward thinking and supportive to then leave and find somebody who is. So restaurants are obviously in a position where they now suddenly need to pay higher wages. They need to come up with incentive programs and bonuses. If you meet this goal, that goal, and or if you literally just stay here for the next three months, I'll give you X and such of a bonus. Now, I when I, you know, running restaurants, we always had job descriptions, very detailed job descriptions for every position, front and back of house. And next to each line item was, you know, sort of a blank line where we'd read it in an interview or in a meeting so that we both understood each other. This is what we expect. These are the basics of the job. Sign off if you agree kind of thing. And then you can hold people accountable if the performance doesn't exactly match what you expect from them. And then there was something called key results for going above and beyond, showing initiative, being empowered good judgment, doing this and such, and even building the business. If you were in a position of bringing business in the door in some way, you would get a percentage of that. So those are the incentives. What have you seen or what do you recommend now that restaurants are sort of being forced to come up with these incentives, yet you don't just want to throw money at people. You need to get the best out of the people to earn the money. Well, I think part of it is a financial consideration because in coming back, there has been a kind of a deficit in what people are making. In some places, people are making a large share, uh, even more than they were before, because they're simply overwhelmed. But there are some other places, especially in new restaurant openings, to where people are not finding themselves, you know, you, it, and it, this, this is... 20 pre 2020 as well to where you would open a place and you spend all this time training. And the next thing, you know, you open and you make 50 bucks and now you're like, Oh, well, I've just wasted two and a half weeks of training. Why? And then you go off and find something else. So part of that has to do with guaranteed minimums. This is, I've seen this successfully happening to where you come back. We're going to make sure that you're making X amount. We're going to meet you in the middle. So many places are paying uh, either on check or kickfin or one of those things that allows you to have full transparency of what that staff member is making. So it's a very easy ability to say, okay, well, we agreed on hundred and you made 60. So we're going to go ahead and give you 40. That is a supportive thing. So there is a financial component to that. I think that the other aspect is goes back to being able to empower people to have control of their environment. And I've always been a proponent of this. If all you are as a manager is a comp and void machine and your server doesn't have the ability to, to you know, comp a dessert or do something extra nice without having to go get the manager, then quite honestly, they're being childed and the manager is in this overlord authority that doesn't really provide hospitality. You see this a lot when there's a problem at the table. You they do the requisite two-byte check and somebody says, you know what, my steak is a little cold. And then the next thing that you hear, oh, I'll go get the manager. Like somehow that server doesn't have the capacity or knowledge or empathy to be able to handle it on their own. But that's what your a lot of places are because they they don't for lack of a better term, trust the staff with the experience. And you have to. You, you always should have, but even more now. 
I would not disagree. You know, we used to have this term called the warm body syndrome, and it comes from desperation, right? Where you'll literally hire anybody just to fill the void right now. And these people in all likelihood are not doing your restaurant any favors. They're undermining the morale of the place. It's like they're giving bad experiences. And and that is not the solution, yet it's happening on a daily basis today. It's like there's got to be a better way, you know, and we used to recruit people. I'd pay cash incentives to my best people saying, who do you know? Bring us people. And and that is still working to this to this day, if you can possibly implement that. And it'll cost far less. You probably have a, a more reasonable or, or a more accurate statistic. But I think it was maybe two years ago, I was attending a restaurant conference and a consultant said that it costs a restaurant somewhere between three and four thousand um, dollars every time they hire someone, get them up to speed in the job. That person either quits, gets fired. You then have to replace that person, get the next person up to speed in the job, and then lost wages, time, productivity, and all the hassles that go along with that. And what restaurant can afford three thousand dollars in a month or two? And the average tenure of a new restaurant employee, I think at the time was three or four months. Now it may be even less than that, but it's like, what a problem that is. I mean, is that a realistic statistic? Because if that is true, then you can afford to pay people, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you bring me someone you think would be great. And if that person lasts a couple of months, I'll give that person two or $300. And it's like, wow, that's how I built my dream team way back in the day. You know, I know my audience has heard this story before, and maybe the new listeners have not. But when I was starting my very first place, a new hotel was being built in our town, and they were going to need about two or 300 people in service personnel and housekeepers and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, perfect timing. How am I possibly going to staff up? And I needed like 20 people, not 200, but still. And I needed great people. And that's how I did it. I recruited and gave incentives and bonuses and all that kind of stuff. And gradually, you know, the dream team was built and anybody knew that was a C player just didn't fit in. If they didn't assimilate the training, if they didn't fit the chemistry or the fit of the place, they were literally voted off the island by the staff and we didn't have to fire anyone. It was like the attrition just happened because they didn't fit, you know, and that was my dynamic years ago. What do you think is happening today, Ken? I don't think that there's anything fundamentally different from what your dynamic was before than what should exist now. The one insert that I would suggest is having staff be a part of that hiring process. So if you're a part, it's, it's big. Like if you're hiring a new bartender, who's the best person to make that determination? Is it Mm -hmm. you as a manager or is it your fellow bartenders? So invite them into the job fairs, invite them into the conversations. Because if you hire Todd off the street and you put him behind the bar and he fails, then every one of your bartenders are going to be like, who hired Todd? He is terrible. This guy is awful. But if they were a part of it, (laughs) then they're going to be like, we hired Todd. Wow. We, We need to really help him out. And then that way they bring them into the fold. And In doing that, everyone has a universal response and what builds that culture. Because very quickly, I often say, who knows more about running a bar, me or the bartenders? Well, the bartenders. So I'm going to listen to them and I'm going to empower them to be able to not only own the experience with the guest, but help with the staffing. 
And that's, that is a far, I think that's the most effective response. Yes. Being able to find friends of friends is great. And everyone knows somebody in the industry and that's always good, but you don't want to build up clicks and associations to where if, if it dominoes with one, then everybody else goes falling down. But if you are able to source people to come in for interviews, which is still a challenge uh, that much more now, it doesn't, it, it definitely would be helpful to have bartenders who are willing to be a part of the conversation, invite them into it. Hey, we're going to do hiring at one o'clock between one and five. Would you like to sit in and do some interviews with us? And then everybody agrees. I like Becky. Let's hire Becky versus one person doing it unilaterally. Do you believe in, and is it your best advice, Ken, to hire for personality versus experience? Every time. I think Always. I think that the only position for at least from a front of the house now back of the house is an entirely different standard of of knowledge but for front of the house the only one that that requires any level is bartending and that's assuming that you're going to put them straight behind the bar you can 100% bring them in as a bar back and work them through what the paces are get them to understand how to make the specialty cocktails and slowly but surely build them part of that whole aspect goes back to succession planning, the ability to say, hey, this is where you are right now. Let's try to get you from here to there. And these are the three steps that you're going to want to take. So I'm I'm not against the idea of bringing somebody in with a lack of knowledge as a bartender, but there's got to be a middle gap so that it supports there. But otherwise, my goodness, yes. Because if you're an effective manager, you can pe- teach anyone to be a server. You can teach anyone to be a host. You can teach anyone to be uh, a support. That's that. What you can't teach is the obvious. It's the work ethic. It's the pride in who you are. It's your personality. It's your willingness to get along with other people. You know, there are a lot of jobs in the restaurant that are high pressure cooker type situations uh, a host in a busy restaurant comes to mind where they literally have to be the air traffic controller be calm under pressure you know under promise and over deliver versus the other way you know accurate wait times on tables and all those things are super important yet their condition their work conditions are a lot more pleasant than say the back of house working in front of a 900 degree stove for like 8 or 10 hour shifts where the stress level really builds and the tickets are on the floor and and even though you know you have really really talented cooks the personality thing really and the approach to the job is super important there too because the chemistry between the front of the house and the back of the house you know we've seen we've all seen and heard those horror stories of you know line cooks and chefs throwing pots and pans and yelling at the servers because this wasn't cooked properly and hey i need a redo here and the tickets are on the floor i mean what a high pressure situation it's like how do we deal with that dynamic between the front of house, back of house. How do we manage personalities, Ken, so that you know it's seamless, it's fun to be there. It's like the personalities blend versus clash. I mean, especially if you're a new manager just being thrown into this, that's probably the biggest thing that happens that you need to solve immediately. What's your best advice? Well, I think that you you talk about the the challenge of uh, front of house, back of the house. So the first thing in order to kind of improve that is to make absolutely sure that everybody knows everybody's name as silly and stupid as that sounds the number of times that a server will walk back to dish and ask for more forks and not know the person's name and dish is is not only annoying it's insulting and so 
that has there has to be an understanding of everybody together. And then as far as the culture from back of the house, I have been very fortunate in working with chefs that are talented and egoless because we've all worked with those chefs to where if something comes back, if there's a undercooked steak at table 43, then you walk up to chef and say, hey, may I speak? Look, this if table 43 and they'll go throw it in a dish. I don't care. Whereas I traditionally look for those chefs who demand anything being sent back. They want to see it. They want to take a look at it. They want to see how to, how to make it better so that they have an understanding of that. It's people that are willing to be accepting of the of criticism in a in a constructive way from a culinary standpoint that I think is massively important. I also think it's really, really important to make sure that there's communication on the positive as much as the negative. I talk about this when it comes to table touching is the number of times that a manager will get compliments at the table. I mean, if they get negatives at the table, by just logic, they should be writing those down and, and tracking those and working to improve those. But how often are you hearing compliments and those being shared positively with the staff? Because not only are they standing in front of 900 degree broilers and sweating and tickets on the floor and the whole nine yards, all they're being brought is negativity of the few items out of hundreds of dishes, the four that were incorrect, instead of the celebration of the 96 that actually were exceptional and the smiles and positivity on the floor. And that's the, I've always felt that I am in a very good position as a front of the house manager, a very blessed position, if you would, simply because I get to see everyone being happy. And the majority of the people I see in restaurants are just really happy to be there. They're appreciative and they love the food. And that's something chefs don't really get to share in, which is really, really unfortunate. And so I try to work to, to uh, counterbalance that with as much positivity feedback as well. You know, that's a great point because pre-shift exercises are super important and restaurants that hold regular pre-shifts generally just involve the front of house. They don't necessarily bring the back of house into it. And I think a great team building exercise would be to share some of these positives that the kitchen don't hear as often as the front of house here. And then that leads to a sense of perfection and caring and wanting to exceed those expectations every time, no matter how crazy things get, it's like, that's the mindset. We want everything to be perfect, even though it's impossible that everything is perfect. And, and that's how you bring people together. I, I love that. That's, that's fantastic. Let's talk about um, some front of house people that maybe aspire to become managers. What are the, some of the things that they can learn or to show their existing manager that they want to move up? I mean, how do they take initiative? And is it just putting hours in on the floor? Is it doing things without being asked? Is it, you know, monitoring the side work of other people without being sort of the rat that, you know, tells on people like, what do you see happening? And, and what is the training ground for someone who wants to move up in an organization that starts as a server, a bartender, even a host? I think it's lobbying. I think it's yeah. putting yourself forward and, and not assuming that people are going to notice you and say, oh, he's, Carl's doing a really great job. We should probably think about making him a manager. It's not that. It's quite honestly being that person who's willing to ask, hey, 
Do you mind showing me how you do this? Do you mind putting me uh, through the paces of X? And that could be how you do a nightly closeout. That could be uh, being able to do a labor forecast. It could be anything that you know as a server or bartender that a manager traditionally has to do. And it's also the willingness to come in on your day off to do those things because it's not school it's not where you're compensated. It's you saying, okay, I would really like to elevate. I would really like to kind of fill in the gaps of what a manager does. Would you mind if I what, shadowed you one of these off days to be able to understand how you touch tables and to get a better sense for it and to really show that you have a passion in doing that. And that puts you in a, good position. It also puts you in a position if you're willing to be the person to do the hardest and worst jobs. I talk about in the book about uh, when I worked at a nightclub, how I got my first management job in a nightclub is that as a bouncer, there was the best position, which is at the front door where you get to tell people who comes in, who doesn't, and they're nice to you and they flirt with you and it's great. And people give you money to come in the, or the worst position, which was the corner of the dance floor where you just told people not to hang their drinks over the rail while they were dancing. And it was a complete negative, And all you did all night is just tell people no. And everybody hated that position. And I chose that position absolutely every time. Reason being is I knew that I wanted to move into management. And when I began lobbying for that, they were always like, hey, Ken's always willing to do the hard job. Ken's always got the, his hand up of doing the thing that nobody else might want to do. And between the lobbying and my willingness to tackle anything, which is why I got that position. So I think that that's, that's an important thing. But if you're wanting to move into any position, into restaurant management, you have to find that mentor. You have to find that person who's willing to take an extra few hours out of their week to work with you. And if you can't find them in your restaurant, find them somewhere. Find that person who's willing to give you that information. And if you can, it will help you in your, in your growth. So part of being a manager is both praising and critiquing performance, you know? And there's a book called The One Minute Manager. I'm sure you read it. And I have. We, we ran our business for years just based on the simple premise of, you know, you give a, th- and, and they call it the one minute manager because it's based on, okay, you recognize someone doing something right. You touched on that earlier. And then you give them a one minute praise. And it doesn't have to be a minute. It could be 10 seconds. It's just recognition that people literally thrive on. Everyone works for a paycheck, but people really thrive on knowing they're doing a good job. They're meeting or exceeding expectations and it's recognized. That is so powerful. But then the critique part is a very delicate balance. First, you don't, you never want to critique anyone in front of their peers, in front of staff, in front of guests, nothing. You pull them aside in a private place, of course. And then there's a strategy behind, and we talked about the job description earlier. You agreed that this was what we expected from you, yet your performance is this versus that. What, what, how would you advise owners or managers for the critique process in private? How do you not demoralize someone, but how do you build them up while still getting the message across that the performance isn't what it should be, Ken? I think that there's two big things that you touched on. First off, if you do get to a point to where you're having that pulling them over, pulling them over in a constructive environment, it's never dragging them one-on-one into the manager office. No worse dynamic than that. It's finding a place to where it's comfortable. It's not in public where you have a manager and a 
a witness. And that witness can be anybody else that's salaried. And what works the best is if it's somebody that the person that you're speaking to feels like they have a rapport with as well. And you literally position them off to the side. It's not a two-on-one thing. You don't set this and a witness on one side and then the person on the other side. You set them over in the corner and you say, hey, just to let you know, this person here is a witness for your support as much as they are for mine, just to make sure that they're documenting our conversation. And that is so supportive because so often in the heat of the moment, you think that you're doing the right thing by addressing it, but in doing so, you're coming across elevated, which is not building any sort of improvement, you're actually devolving that and making it feel very uncomfortable for that person. So putting it in a nice open space, not locked in an office with a with a um, witness is very, very important. But as far as managing people, the most important thing that I have found is managing on data versus emotion. It drives me bonkers when I deal with restaurant owners and they'll say things like, you know what? I don't feel Todd has good energy or I feel Becky could do more. And that is the absolute equivalent of saying to somebody, you know what? You need to smile more. It's worthless management because it's based on just emotion. It's anecdotal. There's no positive benefit from that of, oh, more energy. Well, what does more energy look like? You have to manage people with data. So if you have a server that's not performing to what your expectations are, then look at their tip percentages, look at their check averages, look at their turn times, look at their request rates, look at all the different things that you can measure on an equal plane between one person to another. And that also really plays in a lot when you're talking about staffing and sections. You... This is not t this is not t-ball. Everybody doesn't get the same turn in the same space. You have to put your best players in the hardest positions. You do. There's no way around that. If you have a, a highly requested section and it's the toughest ones by the window, you're going to have to put your best person there. But you're going to have to have adult conversations with people when they say, "Well, how come Todd has a four table section and I only have a two? Well. Because Todd does blank, blank, blank. And what you need to do in order to be Todd and to get that window section is to do these three things. You need to elevate your tip average. You need to have your, your uh, response rate on Yelp uh, look better. You need to have the, all these different measurables that you can manage people by. So when they tick off those boxes, then they can get those sections. But just saying, well... Todd has a lot of energy and you just don't have a lot of pep is just the worst way of managing people. How do you recommend new managers lead by example? You know, I believe that's a super powerful concept, leading by example, not being too important to clean a window, pick up a piece of trash in the parking lot. You know, everyone has a set of eyes. Everyone can recognize things that we don't want the guests to see, things that need to be fixed, the empowerment piece where you see something, you fix it. But how do you lead by example without people just sort of expecting the manager to constantly be doing the work along with that as opposed to managing? I mean, there's a balance there as well. There is a balance because if you do too much, if you're always the one who's sweeping up in front of the host stand, then at some point they think that that's your job. Right. I right. have always, I always look for talent by 
going in and starting to sweep or starting to bust a table and seeing who comes and takes it out of my hand. And the person that does, I go, yep, that that person's on point. And it is a little bit of a test, but I'll also praise that in the moment. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, I think it's a generous amount of being present, but also being present in the most constructive and positive of ways. One of the things that I focus on in the book has to do with how, as a manager, you support your team during high volume. And you see this all the time. It's Friday night. You're getting crushed. There's a huge line. Everyone, the bar is going down. And that freshman manager thinks, oh, I'm going to help out. And they just jump behind the bar. They try to start making drinks. Well, it's a complete waste of time because first off, you're in their way. I don't care how much you think you're helping. Your bartenders are better bartenders than you. You haven't been doing it in a while. You're not helping. All you're doing is signaling to everybody, look at me, I'm helping. So that when the owner comes in and says, what were you doing when we're getting crushed at eight o'clock on Friday? I I served drink for two hours. Well, you focused on one position to signal to everybody, look, I'm being part of the solution, but you're not. When you find yourself in that crush, you should be helping out in ways that support your team, but also address the guest. That is the time for the heightened table touch. You might have already spoken to that table at the beginning, but you better speak to them again because now that you know your drink times are 12 minutes and they might be waiting for drinks for you to see how it's affecting the guest. And if you're wanting to help the bussers, then you're helping bus while talking to the guests, you're pre-bussing. You're at instead of going to the host stand, and you see this a lot, where managers will just push the host out of the way and they'll be like, I'll handle the, the host stand. No, because right. you you don't do it as well as your hosts do. You can definitely seat them, you can definitely walk with people and set level expectations. Hi. Welcome. We're so happy to have you. It's a, re- it's a really busy night. I'm going to let you know that you're probably going to want to order appetizers first because those will come out quicker, but it it's great to have you here and we really look forward and I'll be checking back with you to make sure that everything's exceptional. That, and you're doing that over and over, table by table to see how this push is affecting the guest experience and supporting your team when you can but in ways that don't try to usurp what they're doing best. Your runners can run. Don't go to Expo and run food. Your runners can run for, they can do that better than you. Everybody can do their job better than you. You can be the person that helps run the dish tub upstairs to dish. You can be that person that helps pre-bus tables. You can be the person that helps seat people. But most importantly, you do that, support your team by talking to the guests more. You know, I love the fact that you differentiate between customers and guests. And that goes back to the hospitality word and how you define hospitality as bringing people into your home. How would they be treated? Your restaurant is your home. Every person is a guest, not a customer. And I think that should be the universal term for patrons in a restaurant. It should always be the guest, not the customer. The customer implies that you just want to take their money and, you know, the the experience is not important. It's really about delivering what I call amazing dining experiences, treating everyone like a very important person, even if if they're a first-time visitor, and giving them reasons to come back again and again, leave positive reviews, and tell everyone they know that's the place you need to go to because I felt like 
you know, I felt like the president, <laughs> you know, I was treated so well. And, and that is a beautiful thing that I think that is at the very core of hospitality. Is it possible, Ken, here's a question out of left field. Is it possible to please all the people all the time in this no, business? No, and the customer is often wrong, completely wrong. And that's okay. It's <laughs> If you have to focus on one group, you focus on your team, obviously, because once your staff is, is elevated and bought in and they love what you're doing, then that, that translates hospitality. But you will oftentimes encounter people if you're doing your table touches and doing them correctly and not doing the lazy table touch where you just wander over and say, how is everything? How is everything? Right. Table to table right. robotically, but yes. you're actually asking detailed questions to elicit responses and then documenting those responses so that you can learn. If you're doing all of that, you're going to uncover people that not only have true challenges with their experience, but some that absolutely don't or say things like, I've been waiting 40 minutes and they've been waiting five. But your job is not to try to convince anybody that they're right. This happens so often with negative reviews. Restaurateurs want to respond to reviews by saying, oh, you know what? This isn't correct and trying to defend their restaurant does you no favors. You never get anywhere in hospitality by trying to convince people that they're wrong. If you can't pronounce charcuterie, I'm not going to I'm not going to correct you at the table. However you pronounce it, I'm going to parrot it back to you. And it's one of the things about training that I do. Mm -hmm. You you mispronounce mispronounce back. It's not about being right. And for guests when there's a challenge, it's I'll, I'll give you a quick example. I had this one chicken that we used to bring in, and it was great, and it was you know, natural and fantastic. But when you would cut into it, every once in a while, you'd hit the bloodline next to the the thigh because it right. was just very. It was it was a great product, but every once in a while, that's just part of having a great product that's not overdone. And when that happened, the blood would spurt out, and it would look raw. And so you would have the guest that would say. Oh, my chicken's raw. And chef would be the first to say, it's not actually raw. It's not. It's completely well cooked. It's just you hit the bloodline. The, but if you go to a table and say to somebody, you know what? I know that's bloody and it looks it looks raw, but it's not. You're totally fine to eat. You're All they're thinking of is you're trying to convince them to eat raw chicken. Correct. So hmm. it's it, they're wrong. They are completely wrong, but it's not about being right. It's about understanding where they're coming from and being empathetic. I often call this the, uh, I'm sorry, the water is too wet. Okay, well, water's wet. There's nothing I can do about it, but it's not about me trying to convince you. It's about me saying, I am so sorry that we didn't meet your expectations. Let me see what I can do to make your experience except more exceptional. Well, you just dove into a super challenging topic because in the age of online reviews, it's a very dangerous thing how we handle online reviews. And yes, the customer is not the guest. Let me correct myself. The guest <laughs> See, is See, I not would never correct you. That's part oh. of hospitality. <laughs> so the guest is not always correct in some situations and they tend to exaggerate in certain reviews and it can really harm your business. And you have to be a real PR strategist to handle things properly, correctly, tactfully 
and still, you know, gain sat- the satisfaction of the guests so that they walk away feeling like their problem was resolved. If in fact there was a problem, that's a real balance. I mean, wow, it takes a real expert to do that. What's your best advice and who should be the person? Should it always be the owner? Should it be the GM? I mean, who handles reviews in most cases? And how do you get good at this? It's probably one of the hardest things to do. I like it being the GM. I think that that's an that's an important person mm-hmm. in the venue to do it. But there's definitely the opportunity for it to be a manager as well. Uh, online reviews absolutely are a huge focus. And one of the things that you have to look at is the psychology of why somebody chooses to do this. Like I, I have never in the history of my life written four paragraphs about how much I don't like a restaurant, but a lot of people do. And all that is, is passion. I think that Danny Meyer calls it a love letter. It's that you're actually, that level of passion of, I'm going to write this out, means that their level of disappointment was really, really elevated. But you can use that passion to turn it right around. And by reaching out and using certain techniques, you can absolutely turn a one star into a five star. And the first thing that you have to do is change the conversation. Every review that you've ever read in your entire life was never written to the restaurant. Never. It's always, hey, you should definitely check this place out. It's amazing. You're going to love it. Or don't go here. Beware. It's terrible. And it's written to some sort of audience. And people who write big, long reviews truly think that they have an audience of people that I guess are waiting. You know, I wonder what he thinks about this just chicken restaurant, that sort of thing to where they feel like that they're speaking to a general public. So when you reach out, the first thing that you do is say, thank you so much for reaching out to me because you're changing it from public to private which is why if you have the ability to do it, like on platforms like Yelp, never respond publicly. And if you have to respond publicly, like on Google, to where it doesn't give you that ability to go private, just say, I would love to talk more about this experience. Here's my email, hit me up. Because the minute you can pull them off of their soapbox and have a discourse one-on-one, then great. And then secondly, you Make sure that you acknowledge only the negatives. Nothing worse than they say the three things that are positive and then the three things that are negative. And you start your review by saying, I'm really glad you like the chicken and that the green beans are fantastic, but I'm sorry to hear about the creme brulee. That. Forget forget the first two. Let's just jump into what was wrong and then just apologize for it, literally, and then try to invite them back. Don't use form letters. Write it, write it genuinely because you really want this person to come back and you really want them to also change their rating. Let's be honest. Half the reason that you're wanting to reach out is because they gave you a one star, but don't acknowledge it, the star rating in your response. By doing that, all you're doing is making it be about the rating. So uh, I saw that you had a one-star experience. I want you to have a five-star experience just means I just want your five stars. I don't care about your experience. So you don't address that. And in doing all of those things, you're allowing a communication that by and large is going to elicit a response because think about it in terms of a relationship. 
as long as you're arguing, if you and your partner are still having an argument, that's still passion. The minute that it go, turns to what, whatever, that's apathy. Yes. And that's the person that walks away from your restaurant and never says anything. And that's the person that doesn't give you a one star. That's just apathy. I'll take a one star over walking away zero stars any day of the year. Great point. Let's talk about your new book, Ken. It's called The Surprise Restaurant Manager. How did you title the book? What does it mean? And give us sort of an overview of the book and what it's designed to do. So The Surprise Restaurant Manager is written to be the surprise of, hey, now you find yourself with the keys and this position. How do you deal with that? And it starts with everything from how to find good staff, how to train them, how to develop them, how to support them on the floor, what happens when you do have to have challenging conversations, um, using witnesses, and even the art of termination. The number of times that I see people terminate incorrectly is just abhorrent. And terminations are hard. I've been on both sides of those. And in having that, you have to do it in a, in a way that is respectful and a way that is proper that a lot of people just don't know. So that's one of the chapters. And as it goes on, it talks a lot more about uh, the philosophy of results versus ego, that if you're really truly focused on getting something done, you don't bring your ego into, this is my title, or dealing with strong personalities, which is usually owners, um, and how to counterbalance their sort of hyper alpha aggression to your advantage or truly understanding and appreciating blunt criticism. Cause so many people say, I really want you to tell it to me straight. And then they do. And you, you wilt and freak out because you didn't really want it. You know, <laughs> you didn't really want like honest criticism. Um, all of that just as you go through the book kind of gets into it. So the surprise aspect is that you were just, you found yourself in, as being a restaurant manager. And if you're a server or a bartender, and then you decide to be a manager, my first question to you is always, why? <laughs> I mean, you're going to now make half as much money for twice as many hours. Literally. Why, why are you doing this? So chapter one is the examination of why you even choose to be a manager in the first place, because it's boot camp. And if you only went to boot camp just to go to boot camp, there's not, you're not going on to anything greater. You're just staying in that, that role. It is a stopgap onto greater things, onto an AGM role, onto ownership of another place, onto some other aspect. Why are you doing what you're doing? And those motivations kind of, help you through all the surprises that you'll hit along the way. Sometimes you can recognize in people, you know, it's, I've got a story that I've told before on this podcast. That's really motivating because this business is one that doesn't require a formal education. You can go to the absolute top and build an empire in this business without going to college, starting as a dishwasher, as we did. And, you know, my very first restaurant 26 years ago, my first employee was a 15 year old dishwasher. And within two or three weeks, you could just tell this kid wanted to go places. He wanted to learn as much as he could about the business. He asked for more responsibility. Within three weeks time, he literally was closing the restaurant at night, sending the credit card batch, setting the alarm, locking the doors so that my partner and I could leave and go home, you know, at a reasonable hour. 
And then he just wanted to be mentored. And he stayed with me 15 years and I taught him as much as I could. It took him under my wing kind of thing. And 15 years later, as a 30-year-old young person, he started his own restaurant. And this is what's possible in this business. So it's really inspiring. And you can recognize this in certain people. They just have that fire in their belly, you know, for lack of a better cliche, but you can just tell. And you want so many of those people and you want to take the time as a manager to really develop and, and encourage that talent. You know, your book walks through different scenarios of, of front of house people that get into management for a variety of reasons. You talk about the timed out, the family business, the emergency fill in uh, vanity project, I think, and then career climbers. Do you want to just give us a quick, uh, you know, taste of each of those scenarios and, and why they're in the book? Sure. So it starts at the career climber sounds like exactly uh, the person that you just mentioned. And that's the best. That's the person who's bought in and they're truly seeing a future in restaurants. Junior architects are architects because they want to be architects. That's what they do and they build their way up. But the majority of the people that we work with in restaurants are doing this as a stopgap position. So I, and, and I'm sure by the way, that you, you much like myself, define your successes by those stories. It's not about making millions for millionaires. It's about taking a 15-year-old who now has an empire because you are a part of their life. So good on you. That's right. that's a that's a fantastic way of being. That's fulfilling. Uh, it, is, it is it is the yeah. best. It is the absolute best. Uh the other reasons that people find themselves as a restaurant manager can include vanity project. I see this with people who are very, very popular or very um successful in their other career. They might have done, they might've been a pediatrician. They might've been uh, in pharmaceutical sales. They might've had a hundred things that they did outside of our industry and always thought, you know what? I think it'd be fun to own a restaurant. And that's the romantic spirit of people who've never worked in a restaurant who think it's going to be fun. And as we all know, it, there's a lot of things it isn't is, but Fun, it's fun. Sounds easy, and it's definitely not easy. Uh, there are people who are fill-ins. You find yourself, and I'm seeing people who are being handed keys in one of our the venues I work with. The event sales managers have all been dubbed into managers because. Before they were selling events, but as the world closed, they didn't have any events to sell. So as they're reopening, now they find themselves as managers. That's not what they do, but they're holding down a position and they need to have the fundamental understanding of what it is to run a floor. So from that standpoint, they're doing it in order to hold down for a short time before they jump back into what they want to do. Uh, the culinary visionary is the person who was a great chef and they love, everyone loves their cooking and they've always dreamed about having a restaurant, but being an exceptional chef doesn't necessarily equate to being an exceptional restaurant operator. True enough. Does it? It doesn't mean that you have an understanding of the financials. It doesn't mean right. that you have a, a communication. It doesn't mean that you understand the front of the house piece. And I say in my preface that, my book is geared more towards front of the house because it's what I know and because being a chef is an 
artist. You, you have to be an artist. It's that it is no different than being a painter or a sculptor. You're born with it or you're not. And I was not born with it. You can ask my wife. I am a terrible, terrible cook at the house. There's no way I could do what chefs do. So I have a complete love and appreciation for them. But if you were that person, it doesn't necessarily translate in your ability to run the operations as a whole. And so all of these different aspects and several more all kind of give you the opportunity to say, why am I here? Why did I ultimately find myself in this position? And are you the person that was drinking your Bloody Mary at noon at your local bar and they handed you the keys and said, yeah, surprise, you're, you you're a manager. And then what part of that didn't make you go run screaming into the street? Why did you choose to do that? Mine was the fear of being the 40-year-old nightclub bartender that nobody wanted to you know, get a drink from because the, I had timed out. That was it. That, that in my head was, oh my God, I need to find a career in this because I went to school for English. I didn't want to teach. And I loved the hospitality industry, but being in the like hourly level, I knew that there was a finite amount of time in the, in the, at least in the environments that I was in, which is why I ultimately made the choice to be a restaurant manager. And the minute I did that, I had to pick up a second job in order to keep my apartment in Chicago because I went from making two, $300 a shift as a server to making $75 on check as a, as a restaurant manager. And I did that because I knew it was boot camp. And I did that in a time of my life. I was 29 at the point to where I said, I, I have to do that. And once you, once you make those determinations, it motivated, it motivates me. So when I was doing that for three years, and it got really, really hard at times. I knew that at some point I'd be running in that that place, and I ended up doing so. Take a step back to take two or three steps forward. Correct. Down Correct. the road. Ken, we've covered a lot of ground today. How can people um, find your book? How can people reach out to you? And why don't you give us your social media handles as well? Sure. You can find me at Corgan, K-O-R-G-E-N, Hospitality. My wife's name is Morgan, so you can see how that adorable oh, name gotcha. came together. Oh, see? I get hey, it. Hey, there you go. You see, Ken and Morgan. Okay. Um, you can find the book on Amazon. And the reason that I mostly push people to Amazon is simply because you can download the book, um, the the e-copy, for 99 cents. And that's a very important thing to me. And I purposely did that. I had to work out an exclusivity deal with downloads with Amazon simply to keep that price at 99 cents because I want as many people in the to get this as absolutely possible. And if you want a PDF for free, you can email me. Hit me up at a Corgan Hospitality. I will literally give it out to you because at this point, I guess the the base reason why I wrote it is I think it's important. And I think that right now, especially a lot of people are in positions where they're not given the tools and the education to succeed. And because people just don't have time to do that. And this book will hopefully fill in some holes and would love to be a part of that solution. Fantastic, Ken. I so appreciate you being a guest. So Thank that you, Roger. Again, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. absolutely. So it's corganhospitality.com. Correct. 
Well, wonderful, wonderful. Thanks so much for being a guest. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thank you, audience, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Stay well, everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ken, for inspiring us to develop our team. You know, it is a system because our staff are the foundation of our business, and they're either leaving positive impressions or negative impressions for our guests, and so much of our future business depends on the power and the chemistry of your team. Of course, that's a system. If you're looking for your own turnkey system, look no further than SalesStar's staff training. It's really all about the basics of hospitality, what that means, what customers are looking for in your restaurant and how to increase sales through superior product and restaurant knowledge and delivering what I call amazing dining experiences, as well as lowering turnover in your restaurant, creating that dream team staff, empowerment, all the things we talked about in the episode today, you'll find at SalesStars. You simply go to restaurantrockstars.com. You'll find it on the shop page. Thanks again to our sponsor of this week's episode, Seven Shifts, the all-in-one labor management platform. And again, if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.